So Money episode 1494, Ask Farnoosh, Affording Life's Biggest Purchases. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. You're listening to our Friday episode of Ask Farnoosh, where soon we will be joined by our special guest today. Thanks to our sponsor, Prudential, we have certified financial planner, Mary O'Malley from Prudential here to help us navigate your money questions all under this theme of affording life's big expenses, purchases. I know a lot of us are out there hunting for a home. You might be looking for a new car. You want to start a business, start a family, how to make it all happen. Ahead of that, let's talk about what you may have missed this week on So Money. On Monday, chatted with Amy Porterfield, who is the New York Times bestselling author of Two Weeks Notice. We talked about how to quit, how to quit with financial runway, how to not burn bridges, and how to test your entrepreneurial idea to know that it has legs. Amy herself gave two weeks notice years ago to none other than Tony Robbins. She was working for him and it wasn't a straight path, but she's very open about her experience and talked about the do's and don'ts of giving your two weeks notice. And then on Wednesday, we chatted with Allison Baggerly, who's the creator of Inspired Budget, a massive community that educates around budgeting, spending wisely. Allison has a new book out called Money Made Easy, and she shared some insights on how to spend. You know, we often forget how to spend money, which is kind of what we're talking about today. Uh, We often talk about getting out of debt, investing, all important, but let's remember that spending is also a critical way to use your money and really appreciated that conversation. Tune in if you haven't already. And this is another big thing. For those of you who want to join me for a live call on how to leverage fear To manage your money, you want to pre-order a healthy state of panic by today. Today is the deadline for the earliest birds to pre-order the book and then be invited to this free one-hour live call where I'll be going through my steps for how I've leveraged fear to create wealth in my life. And also there will be other giveaways, including one-on-one money sessions, books. You don't want to miss this. All it takes is pre-ordering the book. Go to ahealthystateofpanic.com to learn all about this and get on our invite list for this call, which is happening in just a few short weeks. All right, next, let's go to our Apple podcast review section and pick our reviewer of the week. This person will get a free 15-minute money session. Okay, this week we're gonna say thank you to Sarah. Sarah Mayer, who wrote, I need so money in the morning like I need my coffee. Sarah is a 41-year-old mom and teacher from the Detroit area. She says, I've listened to your podcast for about a year and I wanna sincerely extend my gratitude to you for being such an integral force in my financial education. I was always the person who skipped checking my student loan balance out of fear, believed money doesn't buy happiness 
happiness and ignored my own money story. But your podcast has been a salve in my life, which has helped me slowly change those behaviors. Sarah, let's talk about your money fears. It looks like you figured it out, but you know, this is my jam. I would love to help you even more. Email me, Farnoosh at SoMoneyPodcast.com. Let me know you left this kind, kind review, and I will reply with a link where you can pick a time for us to connect. All right, let's head to the mailbag and bring on our special co-host this Friday, Prudential Certified Financial Planner, Mary O'Malley. Mary, welcome to So Money. Hi, Farnoosh. Thank you for having me. Yeah. You know, before we get to the mailbag, I love your personal career journey. I don't know if you knew I was going to ask you this, but not to put you on the spot, but had to talk about your transition to financial planning. You began as a special ed teacher. I thought that was really fascinating and wanted to know what drew you to to helping people with their money? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question because it is a a bit of a different uh, career path than I had gone to school for. Uh, And much of this journey was really born out of my own personal failures managing money. You know, shortly after I finished my master's degree, I was just really stressed out financially. I was single, making decent money, but living paycheck to paycheck. And just didn't feel that I had a good handle on my own personal finance. So it really, this journey started in, I would say, early 2000s. And uh, it was just, again, born out of my own inability to manage money. So that's how I really relate to my clients a lot, because there's so much shame in when it comes to debt and just managing money. We all get so overwhelmed because there's just so many options. There's so much to know. And I remember feeling that way. And so that's what took me on that path. And uh, it was it was really fun to, one, just overcome my own struggles and then be able to eventually help others. So that's been a lot of uh, something that's given me a lot of, of joy. I can imagine. Well, we're grateful to have you on the show to help us navigate these questions from our audience about affording life's big purchases. And I love what you said about shame, Mary. And I just, I guess we should preface by saying, look, I mean, we're going to talk about these big expenses that often feel like such milestones, like buying a home and um, starting a family, raising kids. Uh, Maybe you want to build a business one day and, and it may not all happen exactly how or when you anticipate, but that's not something to feel bad about. I just want to maybe start with that. That and you may not even ever buy a home and that's okay too to not feel as though your financial purchases define your self-worth and how you see yourself as, you know, a a, a person leading a meaningful life. Would you say that's fair? <laughs> I would completely agree with that statement. And in many of my meetings with new clients, I always like to set the table with that because I, you know, I always remind clients that I can only help them as much as as the information I know, much like a doctor, right? If you don't know everybody's background, then you can't really help them um, to your best ability. So, you know, there's a lot of shame and debt, but if we don't really address it, acknowledge it and learn how to, you know, wrap our hands around it and uh, create a a plan to to get rid of it or pay it off, then, you know, we, we can't do our best work unless we know about it. Isn't that the truth? Okay, well, let's start with what's so popular right now. It's the spring home buying season. Sadia is this year a first time home buyer. She is in the market and she says, you know, interest rates are really high. Should I wait to buy? The market is 
uh, kind of unpredictable. And she's talking about more like the broad market, right? The job market, the stock market, and all of that does inform our decisions when we're trying to think about paying a lot of money for a home. Like we don't necessarily want to do it if we feel like the economy is not doing so great. But what's your assessment of things? And how's, how do you go about calculating with your clients how to afford a, fir- a first time home, you know, and, and not trying to get too bogged down in the macroeconomics of things? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. It's really important to sit down and understand your, your financial picture. Like I said, we, you really have to be really down and dirty and honest with yourself about the numbers. So cash flow planning with my clients is really important. We need to know what's coming in, what's going out, what you have saved. Uh, you want to look at your credit score too, because interest rates are really high. So the better your credit score is, the better interest rate you might get. One of the benefits we can see, though, in these higher interest rates is that it is starting to help bring down the home prices. I have a lot of friends and clients who are actually, um, you know, looking to purchase a home this spring. And it, you know, over the last year, it became very discouraging. Many of them had uh, gone to make offers and lost out. People were paying, you know, over 20 percent over ask. It's really hard to be in those bidding wars. So these higher interest rates are putting a little bit of a crunch on home prices, maybe bringing them, resetting them a little bit, putting them back to more uh, numbers that are more in line with what the true value of the home is. I always remind clients, you can refinance your mortgage, but once you pay 20 or 30% over ask, you've just locked in that price. So, you know, maybe getting a higher interest rate Eh, it's not great, but interest rates will eventually go down. You can always refinance. You can't repurchase that home, right? That that price is right. locked in. You can't go back into the to the seller and say, "Can I pay you a little bit less?" <laughs> That's um, right. I overpaid and, by twenty percent. <laughs> and I think it should be said because for Sadia and others who are first time home buyers, maybe they are not well aware of where interest rates have been in the past. They're looking yeah. more to the last five years when they were ultra low. I remember buying a home in 2004 and the rate was about 6%. Yeah. And so that's around where we are today to think that this is astronomical and it's not, this has happened before and not so long ago, Um, but you're absolutely right that you can refinance because that's essentially what I did. I refinanced a couple of years later to more like a a 4% rate. So there is always that potential. And you talked about cash flow, so important. What's a good benchmark, what's a good threshold to keep your spending at on a first time home when you're talking about, you know, your monthly budget? Uh, A lot of times we hear the rule of thumb of 30%. -hmm. Yeah. So there's so many different rules of thumb. And I always remind, I think it does give clients a good benchmark, but everybody's situation is going to be a little different. It's good to hear those. So you can kind of frame your thinking, Uh, you know, so sometimes it's three to five times your income. You know, you really don't want to be paying more than 20% of your gross income on your uh, your mortgage payments. So looking again, so you have to know what your what your numbers are. What is your income? Uh, that would be gross income. But still, I, I think a lot of times people look at more net. So what is my take home pay? What can I afford, um, you know, on a monthly basis? Because you don't really want to go all you have to factor in all of the other expenses as well. And being a homeowner does include a lot more expenses. Uh, it's great because you build equity and, and you've got something to show for it, but you do have to pay attention to the taxes, um, you know, 
all of the repairs that can go into owning a home. There's there's a lot of uh, unforeseen expenses that can arise as a homeowner that you don't necessarily have as a renter. So making yourself aware of that is really important. Yeah, you brought up the home repairs. Uh, Coley in the audience wants to know, when is it a smart time to leverage a HELOC, a home equity line of credit, for the purposes of renovating your home? Um, again, rates are slightly higher than they were. Well, not slightly. They're double what they were, let's say, two years ago. And so um, is this still like the best way to borrow to build a new kitchen in your home? What's your What are your thoughts on that, Mary? Yeah, so I think you'd want to do your research. One of the good things, maybe one benefit of of these home prices being so high is that you you could potentially have a lot of equity in your home that could afford you a good amount to borrow from. Um, So, you know, you would want to speak to a lender to find out how much equity you have in your home. And then how is that going? What is that going to cost you? to you know borrow that money and how is it going to be structured that's important and looking at making sure you don't have a variable rate rates have gone up they may potentially continue to go up so you want to be really careful of that just to add to the whole HELOC conversation Mary I actually just took out a HELOC we bought our home in 2020 it has appreciated since And for me, the HELOC, I don't have a home renovation in mind. I don't have really anything in particular that I want to use this for yet. But um, I recently had a big tax bill. I paid off some business loan debt and my liquidity and my savings was going down. And I thought, well, I know I'll be able to replenish this over the course of several months, but it would make me feel better sleeping at night knowing I had access to some low interest debt, low, relatively low interest debt in the event of like something else happening that I can't imagine. You know, I wasn't expecting a high tax bill. I wasn't expecting to pay off my debt so soon this year, but here I am. And so also to afford life's what ifs, it can be wise to take out, if you can, uh, this, and I don't have to use it until I'm ready. It doesn't start charging me until I use it. So that's good. But I'm just keeping this in my break open emergency glass, just in case something else that I wasn't anticipating a big expense pops up in my life. And I don't want to necessarily take out of my savings because that's really there for cash flow purposes to be able to fund our lives in the event of like a layoff or something like that for us. And so um, I hope you would I hope you would advise that is okay. I would completely agree with that. In fact, we do that. I have several clients that, you know, anytime you, especially when you own a home, you want to make sure you have about six months of living expenses. And, you know, the, the rule of thumb can vary if there's a dual income family, it could be as low as three months. I always say at least six months worth of living expenses liquid for those occasions that you speak of. But I have some clients that are a little bit more aggressive. They don't want to keep that much in cash, but they'll use their HELOC for that purpose. So they've got access to that money if they need it. Again, they aren't being charged anything. uh, So if they need it, it's there for them. But then that frees up other cash for other purposes or investments, things like that. But yeah, I think it's a great way to leverage, um, you know, resources for yourself. It's also a lot less, well, I hate to make generalizations, but typically could be a much more inexpensive place to get credit than, let's say, a cash advance on a credit card or something like that. It's it's a relatively safer way to borrow, uh, but I would make sure that it's for 
a, a project that's going to have a really good ROI or, mm-hmm. and, or for me, you know, it's buying peace of mind and preparing myself even more for life's what ifs. Agreed. I totally agree with that statement. All right. Let's, speaking of what ifs, this is great. You didn't know you were uh, helping me transition so well here, Mary, but um, we have a question in the audience about another um, sort of what if, which is medical expenses. You know, a lot of this episode is dedicated to the expenses that we plan for, things like homes and cars and family, um, raising a family. But some of these big expenses we cannot predict, and that includes an injury, an accident, and of course, we would hope everybody has health insurance and maybe even disability insurance. But as we know, there are significant out-of-pocket costs to deal with in many cases. Mm -hmm. What are some ways supplemental insurance can help? There's a few categories of this. There's hospital indemnity, accident, and critical illness insurance that can help pay for costs um, that we would otherwise pay for through savings or, or let's be honest, taking on debt. And this would be in addition to any other coverage that you may already have. Just want to get your thoughts on on when it may make sense for somebody to invest in this. Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, the foundation of good financial planning is risk management. So you you need to be cognizant of all the potential risks that could really devastate your financial well-being. And one of those is premature death, disability, chronic illness, anything that's going to disrupt uh, cash flow, right? Incoming paychecks. So one of the ways I always advise my clients to, you know, one, I have to you know, point out their potential risks, right? Or some of their blind spots that maybe they haven't been paying attention to. Because very rarely do I get incoming calls about, Mary, I need to get more disability insurance or life insurance or critical illness insurance. Unfortunately, we don't get many of those calls. People recognize the risk. They recognize the need to do it. But they're, they can tend to be very reluctant to go out and seek that. So as an advisor, it's my job to, to shine a light on that blind spot and that potential risk. So anytime there's risk, we decide, do we want to transfer that risk or do we want to assume that risk? I always tell people, usually, especially with disability or uh, premature death, that's a risk you really want to transfer to an insurance company. So some of the best ways to do that is, one, look at what your employer is going to offer. Anytime you can get something on a group plan, it's usually going to be much more cost effective. Now, there's always going to be stipulations and fine print. So make sure you're aware of that as well. But that's a great place to start. Look at what you can get through a group benefit. Again, it's going to be more cost effective. Then you can look outside of maybe a group plan, speak with a local agent that can let you know of all the different uh, ways you can, again, manage and transfer that risk. The price is often a barrier to purchase, Mm -hmm. but... It could also be the sort of thing where, to your point, when you do the risk assessment, the price makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Again, it's about transferring risk. And do you want to assume that risk of, um, you know, a, a, an accident, a diagnosis, something that could re- be very financially devastating to you and your family? Okay. Let's move on here to talking about purchasing a car. You know, during the pandemic, it was impossible to locate a car yeah. <laughs> to buy. My audience probably knows this if they've been listening since uh, at least the last couple of years. I, for our second vehicle in our home, I decided to lease it. Despite the traditional financial advice that I always 
understood, which was like, you buy a used car, you pay cash, Mm -hmm. you know, like, okay, well, that's in an ideal world. But I thought that leasing for me, at least made most sense for this second vehicle, because I wasn't going to drive it as much. Um, so it would be a low mileage, low wear and tear kind of car. And if I'm being completely honest, I kind of wanted a fun car. You yeah. know, we have like the safe, we have this sort of, you know, the safe, stable car for the family. And then for me, I work hard. I want to enjoy the drives. And so I I went a little in a different direction with the lease and I don't regret it. And I know that there are many schools of thought on how to purchase a car, but when it comes to advising clients, Mary, on how much to pay for a car or how to afford mm-hmm. it, what's the good balance? Talked about, you know, 30% on a home. I've heard like 15% or or less on your take-home pay towards car payments if you're taking out a loan. What are some of the, the things people should know before they purchase a car? Yeah. Well, what, there's a couple of things I think it's really important to know. Most people are trading in a car. So make sure you know the value of your car um, and what you should be getting for that. And then know your credit score. So if you can't afford to outright buy the car, have a good understanding of probably what you're going to have to pay in interest. Uh, Maybe go to a couple of different lenders outside of just, um, you know, the car dealer. So you can have a good understanding if you're getting a competitive rate. But I also just go back to cash flow planning. Uh, you know, I talked with my client. Nobody really likes the the B word. I had one client who said, "You stop saying that B word." Um, she was referring to budget. So you don't budget has such a restrictive tone to it, and and it's not necessarily about budgeting, but just know what's coming in, know what's going out. So know what your fixed and variable expenses are, because you really should know what you can afford. And we do all get tempted. We spend a lot of time in cars. And if you've ever noticed, you never see a bad car, a rusty car driving around anymore. So, you know, we do tend to spend money on our cars and, and, you know, as long as we can afford to do so, then I, I say, don't, um, don't deny yourself certain privileges. We all work really hard. And as long as you're paying yourself first and it fits in your budget or your numbers, then, you know, allow yourself some of those, um, luxuries in life. Because again, like you said, Farnoosh, you work really hard. And if it works in your numbers, make it work. But know what your what your monthly budget, both on the fixed and variable side, can afford. And you know, another rule of thumb is try never to have your your total debt exceed 40% of your gross income. And I always say just try to keep debt at an all-time minimum. You know, I like I said, I I got into this career really out of my own personal failures, I had a tremendous amount of consumer debt. I was paying very, very high interest rates and I had no idea. And through this, you know, this process of learning about personal finance, I became very aware of paying attention to interest rates because that can be, uh, that can have a really, you know, I always tell people it's compounding interest, but in the net, in the wrong direction. Right. So you've, got to pay attention to the interest rate that you're paying. I think it's important. Yeah. And and one more thing, if you do choose to lease, I remember when I was running the numbers at the car dealer, the sales manager, he was very frank with me. He said, how much do you feel comfortable paying every month? Mm-hmm. We'll make the numbers work. Mm-hmm. You know, And that may mean getting a different model or instead of 36 months, we do 48 months, right? We can stretch out the payments, but I think it's important to be upfront with the 
car dealership about what your budget is. And I would suggest going with someone. I went with my brother who is much more experienced in buying cars and communicating around this sort of stuff at the dealership because I didn't want to feel like I didn't know what I didn't know. And I wanted to have an advocate with me there. And he, you know what? Thanks to Todd, my brother, he got me some free, what are they called? Um, Winter mats. Awesome, Todd. You know, those... Yeah, right. And I mean, those he's like, Farnoosh, those are, those are like $500. Right, that's great. <laughs> and yeah, because he was like, can you throw in those for us? I was a little embarrassed, but I got them. I got them. Hey, so, there's no uh, shame in that game. Bring an advocate. <laughs> that's right. I agree. No. <laughs> and I remember when I purchased my first car after, you know, in the adulting world, my dad went with me. But it was so important to me that I did a lot of that on my own because I wanted to feel like I was doing, that was my first big purchase. And that was fun too. So I just recently read an article and it was interesting. And, and cause I too, am looking to purchase a car though. I'm also maybe trying to push it off, hold it off a little bit, waiting for interest or excuse me, not interest, but maybe inflation to come down a little bit. But, um, this, they were talking about the best time to buy a car and ironically going to the showroom during the weekdays and towards the end of business, they said, according to their research, was the best time to to go car shopping. That's a great tip. That's a great hack. All right. I hope we help people there with their car buying decisions. Let's move on. We have two more themes here. One is affording kids, which could be its own episode. And I have done many of them uh, on So Money. So if, listeners, if you want more after this, just search topic on uh, somoneypodcast.com and, and you'll get deeper into a lot of these um, a lot of these topics we're, we're covering with Mary. But we want to talk about affording kids and then also getting ready to start a business. We just had on a guest on So Money, Amy Porterfield, who talked about building financial runway ahead of launching a business. So we can uh, piggyback off that a little bit. But first, Mary, having kids, I have two of them. The question here from our audience is, how can you tell if you're ready to afford a child? I guess they're wondering, like, should I be making a certain amount of money? Should I have, should I have cleared off all of my credit card debt? There's no perfect time, I think, to have a kid. Yeah. I, um, what would you, what would you say? I would agree with that. So I, I have done as well. And, you know, my husband and I, quote, you know, we tried to wait for the right time financially, but my mother kept saying, there's never the right time financially. Just do it. You'll, you'll figure it out. Now, as a financial advisor, I probably shouldn't give such lackadaisical advice, but I do, there's a degree of, of honesty in that. Kids are very, very expensive. And I did listen to that episode that you did on So Money. And it's so true. I, uh, what is it? Like $500,000 uh, to raise one child from, you know, zero yeah. to yeah. 18. Now, honestly. And that's not including college. Right, right, right. So that's just to 18. That's just to launch them out of high school. Um so realistically, nobody's going to be able to save that much uh, uh, up to to do that. But again, I go back to cash flow planning, know your numbers, try to live as be far below your means as possible, especially when planning for uh, expanding your family. If you do have consumer debt, find out what you're paying in interest rates. One of the things that I did was, um, you know, just going back and forth with credit card companies, trying to, I kind of jockeyed between them. One would offer me 0%. I would do a balance transfer, you know, able to pay directly onto uh, my principal, not accumulating interest. So 
knocking out as much consumer debt as possible, knowing what you have coming in, paying yourself first, though, too, uh, saving for your own retirement. And then, you know, if, if you have extra starting, I, I, you talked about a 529. I started that from the time my children were little. Even if you're just putting in $25, $50 a month, it will have that benefit of compounding interest. But raising a family is very expensive, that's for sure. It is. And so many things we could say on this topic. I would just add that if you have an employer that offers benefits uh, for family leave and families uh, who are adding children into their lives, review those benefits mm-hmm. and and just know what you may, you may have ahead of you. You might be delightfully surprised. I don't think that's often the case, but my husband, I always say, you know, he, um, he thought he had no uh, family leave for when we had our first child. He was convinced he was, he worked for a startup and he thought, well, you know, what are the odds? Well, don't you know, he did ask HR and he found out he had four weeks of paid leave, Oh, great! which I'm telling you, going from thinking you have nothing to a month, yeah, that was a good day in our house. We're finding more and more employers are off, offering paternity yeah. leave. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think it's wise if they want to be competitive. So all this to say, review your benefits, because if nothing else, it's just it just manages your expectations, allows you to plan better ahead of time. So, you know, like, OK, I have these many weeks or months uh, off that are paid these many weeks or months that I want to take off that's not paid. So between now and then, you know, helping um, saving or coming up with money to afford that leave um, is very helpful. That's right. Okay. Last but not least, Mary, affording a startup. You know, we just talked about with Amy Porterfield, as I said, uh, knowing when you can like sort of quit your job and, and there are many factors involved. I recommend people go back and listen to that episode. But in terms of knowing when you can quit your day job um, to start the business, what do you like to see in people's bank accounts? Well, I, again, you know, when with the certified financial planning, we always use those benchmarks. I, they always say have three to six months of living expenses. I would say if you're going to st- do a start, I would want to have at least one year's worth of living expenses to cover uh, to cover your living expenses while you're in transition and you know recreating that new paycheck. That's what would make me feel comfortable. But then also going back to what you had talked about is making sure you have access to credit, such as like a HELOC or something like that. Uh, Trying not to put a lot of money on credit cards because interest rates on those are very, very high. So again, if you could go in, well, obviously with business, you're going to accrue debt, but as as minimal personal debt as possible, that would be important. Yeah. And there are lots of resources for entrepreneurs. Um, You can check your small business development in your town, in your municipality. A lot of those um, organizations have grants. They have free resources. They have free mentoring. SCORE is a great resource for those starting businesses. They're local all over the country. They have chapters. Also, crowdfunding is a huge Mm. vehicle for helping these fledgling entrepreneurs rather than taking on loans or thinking that, you know, it's either going to be like venture capital or bust. Maybe you just need some seed money to get you going. Like 
My friend Karen Khan runs I Fund Women, Mm. which is a great platform where essentially now they do so much. They do, um, they have scholarships, they have mentoring programs, coaching programs, but at the core, it is a crowdfunding platform for women entrepreneurs to get $10 here, $18 there. They do a whole campaign around it and they get these women launched and it's really, really exciting. I encourage you to, to look at all of these additional resources to help you feel more ready for this, for what is a very risky, as mm-hmm. I will speak personally, yeah. <laughs> risky venture, you know, starting a, a business. We should, you know, if you've got, if you've got the urge, you should feed it. That's right. Mary O'Malley, thank you. Thank you so much for helping us navigate these giant topics, which I, like I said, they each merit their own episodes, but we got through it uh, with lots of insights. Thank you. Well, thank you for uh, I I love being on your show, big fan, and I appreciate the time with you today. And everybody, if you would like a free guide to help you set yourself up for financial success today and in the future from Prudential, head over to farnoosh.tv slash Prudential. I'll see you back here on Monday and I hope your weekend is so money. 